Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 26, 2016. This is episode 1795 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Thursday, that means it is time for me to answer your calls to the Think Line. That number, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, remember, if you want to call that number, make sure you have a good signal on your phone if you're using a cell phone. Speak loudly, directly into the phone. Make your point or ask your question immediately, and then give me your details. That's how your call will go best. Uh, I'll put out a couple things uh, today about uh, calls. I got, I got a call from someone asking about rose hips. I actually got two of them today. Actually, they came in like yesterday. Dude, I answered your question in the last call-in show, so... If that was you, go check that out. Next was a guy that drove either from Indiana or Illinois or something like that to Florida. Got that much out of your call, but it was really garbled. I really couldn't understand your call. I think it had something to do with checking maintenance on vehicles or something like that. Love to run your call, man, but it just came in where I couldn't understand it. I don't know that you did anything wrong. It may have just been a bad connection, and you wouldn't know because there's no one on the other end of the line to tell you about it. So what are we going to talk about today? What calls do we have lined up for you? Well, let's take a look at that. Uh, first question I have today is about pasturing turkeys. I'll be doing that here. I did it last year, though the collar situation is somewhat different than mine. And uh, some of my easy uh, coasting uh, on doing this and why I've decided to do it again won't really apply to him. So I'll give you my thoughts on how I would adapt what I'm doing to something that uh, would, would be more in a predator-prone situation. We've had very few predator problems here at Nine Mile Farm. We've had exactly one, and uh, that one did a lot of damage, but its head is now on a fence post in the west pasture. Uh, I also have a, a listener calling in with a follow-up about towing vehicles and tow straps and extraction techniques, and uh, just saying, hey, you know, make sure you pay attention to you, what Jack said, using your equipment before you need it. And I, I'm going to play this one because it's good reinforcement, even though I said that. Plus, somebody emailed me separately with something that I can just throw in as an aside that's really important about when you're extracting a vehicle alone, especially if you don't have a lot of experience that I really didn't mention. And it's one of those things where I would think people would know this, but, well, maybe they wouldn't. I think about the warning labels on like things like irons that say not to iron the clothing while you're wearing it. Uh, or things like, uh, what do you call it? hair dryers. I say not to use them when you're in a bathtub and think maybe I should be a little more uh, concerned about saying everything you shouldn't do when I talk about something the best I can. Next up, uh, a caller with a nice one-acre pond that wants to know about maintaining it. What do we do with pond maintenance? We'll do a little pond biology lesson there today. Uh, also have a caller asking about where do I think things are going to head with the Libertarian Party this year, given the unlikability of Trump and Clinton who seem like they're going to be the it's going to be the, that's the race. I don't know if that's going to be the race or not. Oh no, some stuff came out about Miss Hillary yesterday that could spiral really fast at this point into, you know, something like an indictment. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if that does, that's an interesting thing altogether differently as well too. Um, I'll actually tell you I think we might see the rise of four parties this year, maybe a fifth. 
I mean, Jack Spierko for president. I'll even talk about that a bit again. But remember, if I do it, it's going to be like Brewster's Millions from the 80s movie with Richard Pryor. Don't vote for me. Um, same caller that asked about the Libertarian Party snuck two questions in, did it quick and slick, and got them done. So I'm going to do it. Wants to know what I think your best bang is for your charity dollars. If you're going to donate money, where do you do it? How do you do it? What do you get the most return on your investment? Because that's how I look at giving a charity uh, in, uh, donation. It's not really a donation. I see it as an investment. Uh, not an investment I get a return on in dividends from a financial standpoint, but dividends from making the world a little bit better. Uh, next up, thoughts on setting up your marketing for your new website. We did a business show this week, and I talked about determining your business, but we didn't do any technical marketing stuff. I'll give you kind of a mile-high view of that. This is, that's something that's a learn, you know, it's a skill. And I could do 20 podcasts just on that stuff, and I wouldn't get it all in. And I'll tell you the truth, I don't do it all. I do the stuff that works for me. And uh, there's some things I probably should be doing now that I'll tell you about that I'm not doing because they weren't put in place when I launched this this site, and uh, they probably should be being done, like Pinterest or Instagram. Uh, those are actually really great marketing tools in this day and age. Um, next, the how, when, how and when of introducing new quail to an existing flock. Quail can actually be, well, they can be assholes to each other. They really can, e even more so than chickens, and especially in rack-style systems. Uh, this individual has an aviary, and I'll talk about how to view them like tropical fish and how that actually makes everything a lot easier. Quail like tropical fish? Yep, you bet. And some thoughts in the end today about online privacy and security. We did a great show not long ago about that, so there'll be a link in the show notes about that for you to get all technical with it. But I'll give you some mile-high views about Internet security and privacy because a lot of times it's more about how we think Uh, than all these other things that we do to create more secure environments. Anyway, with that, before we get into your calls, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1795. I have a marriage of inconvenience and blaming the victim. I have a treaty between friends, America, Spain, and Great Britain. And in other news, Jacob Beam sells his first barrel of corn whiskey. That's Jim Beam, of course. Seditious meetings are now illegal in England, which is any meeting not approved. More than 50 people. You more than 50 people getting together in one place without approval? That's not okay. And if you say anything bad about the king, we're going to arrest your ass because we're scared shitless because of what happened in France. And then we have the father of canning begins his experiments. That's Nicholas Appert. A Paris chef uses jars, cooks, and sealing wax. He boils them, overboils them to preserve the food inside. By 1810, a British inventor will introduce the tin can. But I'm going to read a treaty between friends, America, Spain, and Great Britain. Two separate treaties this year are monumentously important to the economic well-being and expansion of the United States. The Treaty of Friendship with Spain is signed this year. It defines the borders of Spanish West Florida, and it establishes a trade relationship between Spain and the United States. Cargo would be allowed to travel along the Mississippi through New Orleans without paying huge fees. This sudden friendship is prompted by the Jay Treaty, also known as the Treaty of Anonymity, Commerce, and Navigation. It was negotiated with the British by John Jay, who ignored his official instructions and thus exceeded his authority to negotiate the treaty in the first place. Nevertheless, when he returns with a signed document, all that stuff about legality, he'll sweep that away because, frankly, it's a good deal. Alexander Hamilton and George Washington wanted it. defines the borders of Canada, shuts down the British forts in the North Territory, this time for real, and establishes trade limits with the British colonies. The legal limit was zero before now. Higher than zero is better, and Captain Nelson won't be forced to sink America shipping. It's a win-win. War is averted for now. My take by Alex Shrug. 
Something else was going on. Spain controlled the Mississippi River. President George Washington realized the United States expansion would eventually reach the Mississippi. So the most honest and straightforward thing would have been to do would have been negotiate a treaty to move Spain out and let America expand. But Washington didn't want to do that. He figured that Spain was weakening. In the following decades, they could possibly hold on to their territories in North America. They couldn't possibly hold on to their territories in North America. They weren't sending any colonists to West Florida. There was only maintaining garrisons, which were drained on Spain's economy, not an asset. Washington also knew the American colonists would push west, regardless of any treaties with the United States might negotiate. Those territories would be overrun, but not right away. Washington was content to let Spain hold those territories until America was ready to occupy them. By then, Spain would be more inclined to release them. FYI, in those days, West Florida was defined as a region called the Florida Panhandle and extending all the way to the Mississippi River. That would include the bottom half of the state of Mississippi and Alabama. Yes, Mobile, Alabama was once part of Florida. Okay, so here's my take on this. Actually, Washington is a calculative genius here. Why engage you to fight when you don't have to with an enemy whose position will weaken over time? Our country could learn from the father of our country with that today. We continuously fight a war with terrorists that actually strengthen and embolden the terrorists by giving them resistance to fight against. When these people live in places with no real resources other than oil, and no matter what the TV's told you, our country could go 10 years at this point without buying any oil from any of these countries that we're so worried about causing all this terrorist activity. We could. Now, your gas might cost a dollar more a gallon. You know what? Screw it. Our gas was a dollar more a gallon before, and the economy didn't explode. We, we would adapt. We would overcome. We would improvise, and we'd be just fine. And we wouldn't go 10 years. We wouldn't go 10 years. Instead of fighting these people, if we left them to themselves, their way of life is so pathetic, it really is, that they would not be able to sustain themselves without oil. Right now, you are paying for people like ISIS to be sustained because their oil is flowing through Turkey and it's ending up over here and we're buying it. Right now you are paying, you are paying to empower an economy in Saudi Arabia where women are beaten with canes in public for wearing the wrong clothing. So both our friends and our enemies, if we want to call them friends, are doing these atrocities and we are battling this diplomatically and militarily When all we really have to do is say, you know what? Piss. Piss off. You're on your own until you stop doing this shit. And how quickly do you think they'd cave in? How quickly do most people cave in when their biggest customer says, if you continue to do this shit, I'm not doing business with you. Oh, we can't survive without it. You know what? There's countries out there that aren't our best friends that I'd rather buy from than these countries that are beating women to, to death, that are setting people on fire, that are hanging people, that are declaring themselves our enemies and, and, and chanting things like death to America. I'd rather buy oil from Putin than from ISIS. I'd rather buy oil from Venezuela than from ISIS, and we do. So buy more if we need it. But right now, this country really could be, if we wanted to be, even on oil, North American energy independent, and we could just let the dying fruit sit on the vine and wither away. And we don't. And you think the people in charge don't know what I just told you? Of course they do. They need an enemy. They need to keep you afraid. That way you'll stay obedient. The more things change, sometimes the more things change. For real. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day today. 
Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, take your first call today. Hi, Jack. This is Doug from the northern Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. I've got a question on the raising of pastured turkeys on the homesteading level. How are you doing on Nine Mile Farm, and what advice can you give me given my situation? There's plenty of information on pasture boilers out there, and I'm raising my first run now. Unfortunately, the, the information on turkeys is limited. Specifically, I'd like to know about brooding, feed at the various stages of life, shelter, predator protection, and disease. I have a couple of acres of pasture on my property. The property borders national forest land, and consequently I have heavy, heavy predator pressure from hawks, foxes, and bears, the bears being more interested in food than the birds. Due to the predator situation, I'm considering keeping them in hoop-style tractors. I plan to, put, to raise four or five broad-breasted bronze that I can get in a group purchase of pulse with a local farmer. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Well, so that we do this in a way that try to kind of maybe benefits everybody that could be doing this rather than just your unique situation, let's start out with a different approach that I'm going to recommend for you because I think you're on the right track. With feet, it's all going to be the same, though. So turkeys need more brooder time than most other birds. Turkeys tend to be kind of stupid. Um, they don't grow really fast for the first few weeks. They grow much slower than you would expect. Around seven, six, seven weeks, something crazy happens, and they start growing like they're on steroids. It's, it's pretty amazing, especially broad-breasted bronze. These birds get massive in you know 90 to 120 days but they don't do much of it for the first you know 21 28 days of it or even more getting much size on them it's it's weird uh how they kind of just all of a sudden take off but so you do need to brood them uh, i'm a big fan with most of my birds of what i call ultra low brooding and i think there's ways to do this with turkeys but i think that You know, if you ha you're in a region where you get a lot of rain and stuff, these guys get wet when they're little fluffy things. They, they go down fast. Uh, they go down really fast. So if you're going to brood them outside, and four, you, you could set up a small tractor system to brood them in if you wanted to. I would brood them in a typical chick style brooder, heat lamps, feeder, chick feeder, chick water. I like to do a drain system with my chick waters, which you can see in the Duck Chronicles, which is basically I cut out a frame, like a picture frame out of plywood, and I cover it with hardware cloth, and I put that underneath, and I put a small uh, plastic tray, in this case, the little ones you get for uh, painting trays, for like trim uh, rollers or whatever, so it's pretty small. So the water on there, so when they, when, they, when they get water out of the water, it goes down in the thing, and you, know, you take it out once or twice a, a day and, and clean it out and what have you. Really, once every other day is plenty. The ducks you know, fill it up. The turkeys aren't that bad. And keep them in a brooder. I'll give you... Uh, some advice that's been given to me by people who have done this before, that sometimes it makes sense to get a couple little chickens 
and put the chickens in there with the turkeys because chickens really eat a lot when they're little baby chicks and they and and birds work through mimicry. So the, one of the problems you have with turkey poults is they tend not to eat a lot. It's one of the reasons that they don't grow really fast when they're small. Um, they just don't catch on as quick. If they catch on but they just don't eat a lot, it's not a big deal. If they don't catch on at all, turkey poults can sit in a brooder and starve to death surrounded by feed. And they'll be pecking the walls, the floor, the, 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 the feeder itself, but not eating. Okay, so it's important to get them eating. So if you don't have uh, other fowl in there with them that cause them to mimic the feeding, one of the things you can do is you take your finger and you put it in the feeder and you pretend you're pecking like you're a bird. And that a lot of times will stimulate them to get going. Once a couple of them start eating, you're good. And with four or five birds, you are more likely to have that problem. Where we have 15, actually we, we ended up with 17, and we lost two. That's another thing. You might want to get a couple extras. Uh, mortality tends to be high with poults which is what you call a baby turkey. Uh, one day, day it got here, got him out of the box, out of the mail, put him in the brooder. Dorothy goes, that one's not going to make it. Like, Dorothy's got to where she can see it too now. Like, it, there was nothing we could have done. The other one managed to cram itself underneath the water somehow and crush itself to death. And I, and it was, this turkey was bent on suicide. Because the day before, I, I, we, we, I looked in, everybody was fine. I, I got a glass of, uh, of hot tea, came back in, and I just happened to look in before I came in my office to work. And in that split second, he had crammed himself under there, and his legs were all like twisted, and he kind of was wobbly after that. Uh, so I, I got him out of there. And son of a gun, like we, you know, we really thought we were keeping a good count on it. And I'm like, man, these guys stink. We need to change their, their, uh, their, their brooder stuff. Uh, like two days later, and I didn't realize he had managed somehow within, you know, God knows when, to jam himself back under there and was dead up underneath the, the, the drain for the water. Um, and that's why the thing stunk, because they're not really pooping that much, because they don't eat them again. They don't eat as much as you would think when they're that little, and getting them to eat is important. So that's, that's your first thing, is getting them, if you get them up to about four or five weeks, they're little Mack trucks at that point. But get them through that brooder stage. So if you're going to do it outside, I recommend do it inside for a week or two. And then have a tarp you can put over a small tractor, heat lamps in it, and definitely make sure you can keep them dry. But you're probably better off brooding three to four weeks before you move them outside at all. As they get bigger, going to a more conventional tractor using something like you're saying hoops, I'm imagining you mean a framed out, wooden framed uh, base using um, cattle panels or hog panels as your kind of covered wagon shape. And covering that, that will work fine for them. I really recommend you think about adding a small fence charger with a battery, even if you have to swap batteries every other day and keep them charged instead of spending the money on solar. If you have a lot of problems with predators, they will dig under, what have you, and you have a lot of money tied up in these birds. So you got to think about it that way. For me, this is what I did. Um, I bought the birds I bought last, last year. They were already... I didn't know how old they were. They're older than I thought now that I'm seeing them grow as poults. Uh, they were probably five or six weeks old. And they were like 12 bucks a piece, but we wanted them, so we got them. We brought them home. We put them in a brooder with ducks. They were in a brooder with ducks for a week. By the time that went over, they were about as big as a small chicken. We put them out with the birds, and we let them free range, and Paddock shifted them with the ducks. And we did no work for them at all. They didn't damage stuff. They did a little scratching here and there, but nothing like chickens. They ate grasshoppers. They ate seeds. They ate weeds. They walked around the place. They became very much uh, affinity with us. 
We'd go out and they would follow us around. If I was digging a hole or something, all of a sudden I'd see a shadow over me. And I got these like three huge turkeys like going, looking over my shoulder going, what do you, what do you got there? What are you doing, man? You, you digging a hole? What can we? I mean, they're kind of cool to have around. I, you know, when I, when I think about it, I, I think about bringing some permanent resident turkeys here. Now, broad-breasted bronze, you don't want to do that with. So our plan for them this year is as soon as they're big enough, we're going to paddock shift them. They're going to be free-ranged. They don't even really need a shelter. Once they're fully feathered out, as long as they have places like bushes and stuff they can go under, if you're free-ranging them and you have them in a controlled environment where they can't get away, they just hang out. You give them food and water, and you don't worry about nothing. I mean, that's my experience with this breed. The, they get big fast, and you get to a point where you need to process them. So you need to, in advance to have a plan for when that happens. And I only had one girl and two toms last year, so I don't know if this is common But my girl turkey was the one that made us decide, okay, they're big enough, they're going. Her breast kind of sagged, like there was a skin sag hanging from it, and eventually she was rubbing her her, her breast uh, skin raw because she was dragging it when she was walking. And that was like, okay, we're done. The weight we ended up with, 37 pounds. These are, these are dressed weights. These are not live weights. 37 pounds, 32 pounds. 26 pounds. The hen was 26 pounds dressed. We got a place that butchers them for $8 a bird, worth every penny as far as I'm concerned. So I'd check around for that too. Um, and it, it can be that easy. Feed, they should be fed to about, between who, depending on who you listen to, between six and eight weeks, you should switch them to a standard grower ration feed, something in the neighborhood of like 20 to 22% protein. Okay? Uh, something like a, a, a broiler grower would uh, for your chickens. They should be on feed, though, of around 26 to 28%, basically game bird starter or game bird feed for the first either, again, six to eight weeks of life. Um, again, full disclosure, last year we didn't know jack crap. We brought the turkeys home. They were on uh, chick starter, which was like 24%, um, so close with the ducks for a week. They went outside, they went on the standard uh, ration that the layer ducks get, which is like 20% protein with supplemental calcium. They did fine. I don't know that this is important and as fussy as people make it out to be now. They were free range, so they could go all over, and they were getting tons of, I mean, grasshoppers here were about three weeks away from the grasshopper apocalypse when they come in droves. And it's, it's a great thing for me. You know, when we first moved in, they were girdling trees and stuff, and it was horrible. Now I can't wait for them to show up because my feed bill goes down. So they were eating the hell out of grasshoppers and bugs and insects and seeds and weeds and, and vegetation. So that may have made it a little bit more forgiving. Um, you definitely want to move them every day. Five birds, you know, a, 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 probably, you know, something like an 8x8 eight eight or an 8x, whether four feet roughly, 8x12. So either three, two or three cattle panels and an eight-foot width, probably fine for your tractor. Um, you're going to have to be careful when you move them, but you should be able to train them by putting a little feed right to the front or something they like, a treat, whatever, to the front side of your, um, of your, your tractor just inside it when you go to move it because then they'll come to the front, and when you move it, you're dragging it up to them. You only have to move them a little bit. And uh, though I've not tractored them, I would imagine they might be easier than chickens because this is something that's true about turkeys. They become attached to your, their keepers pretty much so that when you come out, they come up to you. So if you're just in the front of your tractor pulling it, 
the fact that you're there is going to attract them to the front. They're already, the ones we have in the brooder are like a week old right now. And when we stick our hand in, they all run over and, and, and you know, start pecking on and, and, and climbing on our hands. Um, they can be a little aggressive as babies, too. This is crazy. My, they, they peck me, but my grandson, and he, God bless him, he was totally cool with it, sticks his hand in the brooder, and the freaking turkeys are grabbing him, like, in that skin right between the thumb and the forefinger. The turkey's grabbing him, and he's lifting his hand up, and the turkey's dangling from his hand. Um, didn't even see aggressive, almost just like playing. So uh, I think you'll have fun with it. There's your feed rations. I think your tractor is the only way to go. Um, and I would consider possibly putting a hot wire around the bottom to keep something from tunneling underneath or what have you. Um, I, I wish you had the opportunity to free range them. If you think your predator problems will primarily be after dark, if you think you're your bird problems would go away once these birds are up to, like, say, 12 pounds and you wouldn't be really worried about hawks, then they are actually pretty easy to train to have them go out and come home at night and, and be put away. So if you had a shed or someplace they could be housed overnight, that they would be safe in there, you'd be able to do that. But you're taking a risk with foxes will come out in the daytime. There's just no doubt about it, especially if they know there's a turkey dinner there. They'll wait. They'll look around. They'll come over a fence, you know, it's a fox is like half cat, half dog, really, to me. They'll come over a fence, they'll kill, and they'll, they'll take it away. And it's amazing what a small fox can actually carry. Um, so I, I would be careful with that one. One last bit of advice. If you do, anybody out there, you allow turkeys to intermingle with your, your flock. We didn't know, so we had our turkeys with our ducks. And again, these birds are over 20 pounds, pretty young. And uh, we lost a layer duck that came out of the coop with a broken back and blood coming out of her beak. And we absolutely know one of those turkeys stomped her. It was one of the big toms. I'm sure of it. That day, no more turkeys and ducks together. And they seem to most of the time be okay with each other. So intermingling during the day might be okay. We're not letting it happen this time. We're just not. Um, but if you're putting them away at night, if they're going to be in a confined space with other uh, uh, at night or at any time, I would separate them from smaller fowl because they do get aggressive, and we're pretty sure one of them ate one of the baby ducklings too. So our plan this year is if ducks are in paddock one, turkeys are in paddock two. If ducks are in paddock three, turkeys are in paddock one. So we're going to let them, and I actually have my little fourth small paddock, which would be great for turkeys because the pond's down there. They won't skank it up. There's plenty of forage. So the turkeys will probably spend a lot of time down by the pond. I know that was long for the first answer, but this is a complicated thing, and I wanted to give you a good answer. Let's go ahead and take another one. Jack, Nimrod in Michigan. Hope things are well. You were talking about toe straps and chains in uh, episode 1792. I just wanted to toss out, uh, always, as always, use your gear before you need it. So yeah, I was all about toe straps, and all I could do was wrap my toe strap onto my truck one day, and turns out it, there was a brake line in the way, and I had no other way to do it. So I, I ended up having to get a small section of heavy-duty chain and some um, clasps, and so I can hook that to the subframe on the front of my truck, and then hook the toe strap through a D-ring to that. So uh, I toe straps are the way to go. I just understand. Uh, Reminding everybody, use your gear, at least practice with the gear before you need it, or else you're going to have to pay an extra 100 or 200 bucks to get some uh, brake line switched <laughs> or anything else. Appreciate the show, Jeff. Hope you're doing well.
Yeah, good advice, and it's the exact type of thing I was talking about. I believe what I said in my answer about toe straps and come-alongs is, you know, you could end up in a position where you think you can attach something, but you destroy a bumper. That's a, the perfect example of things. But a fuel line, yeah. I tell you a funny story about a fuel line. Or this was a brake line. This was, but I'll, but I'll tell you a funny story about a fuel line real quick here. Uh, one night, uh, right after I got out of the Army, I did some work in Pennsylvania doing uh, lighting arrays and things like that for a guy that did lights and sound for bands. So I would go in early and set up all the lights, and then he would run the sound for the show and all, and then I would tear everything down. Basically, that was a low-end roadie, right? Uh, and he would pay me cash, and I'd get to hang out in the bar all night, you know, and uh, and for free. And, you know, hang out with the band and everything. So I, I did that for a while. But it would, it would involve me driving home at like 3 o'clock in the morning, you know. And uh, I'm coming over this mountain, and I see a dead possum. I, I think it's dead in the road. And I decide I'm not going to, like, smush the possum. So I move over so that I'm going to straddle the possum, okay? And that way the possum will be under the undercarriage, and the car will just go right over it, and I won't make possum mush. Why do that? Well, just as I'm about to go over the possum, the headlights hit the possum, and for some reason the possum's playing possum in the road, and he lifts his head up, and his eyes light up, and he's looking straight at the car. I'm driving a Ford Mustang, too. It was like a 74 or something like that. And I feel a bone cracking, literally bone cracking, crack, as I hit the possum with some piece of the undercarriage. And I figure it's the steering box, because I actually, as small as this thing is, you know, I'm doing about 60, and I feel it in the steering wheel, crack. And I'm like, you know, I'm 21 years old. I'm just out of the military. I, it, to me, this is funny for a second. I'm like, and I didn't want to hurt him, but, you know, he did it to himself. And the car goes, and, you know, it's the middle of the night. I'm on this, this place called Gordon Mountain. It's the middle of nowhere. Cars are flying by, you know, not often, but enough to be dangerous. I'm pushed over in the dark. I've got a little flashlight in my teeth. I'm up under this car. And if you've ever dealt with a Mustang too, they're very low. And, I, and I've got the hood up, and I'm trying to figure out what's, go, what's gone wrong. And I finally find the fuel line right where it, it, it's screwed in with a brass fitting to the fuel pump is cracked. In other words, you're, you're not fixing it. So I ended up walking to the bottom of the mountain and having to find somebody at 4 o'clock in the morning to pick me up very far from home. And this was before cell phones and, you know, everybody having AAA and things like that. What a nightmare. Which brings me to another recommendation on this. Get AAA. Let me say it again. Get AAA. It is a valid prep. It is a valid prep. We just used it again. We just used it again. Um, you know me. I keep an air compressor and a plug kit in every vehicle. Simple. You get a nail in a tire, screw in a tire, whatever. Air it up, throw a plug in it, get it fixed later. Uh, a lot of times, slow leaks. Pull out the air compressor, air the tire up, go to tire shop. Air the tire up, come home, get out a nice floor jack in the, in the garage and change your tire, do whatever you got to do, but don't be doing it on the side of the road. Wife calls me a couple days ago. I've got a flat. And I'm like, if she's called, she knows how to use the stuff, right? So if she has a flat, something's wrong. So she ends up calling AAA because the tire almost looks like somebody cut it with a knife. So she hit some kind of piece of metal or something. Fortunately, she was in a like a parking lot and was able to just go to the store and wait for AAA to come. But they came. Now, I could have gotten my truck. I could have driven down to where she was. I could have changed it to put the spare tire on and got her home. It would have took two hours out of my day while I was in the middle of running my business. And my wife is not going to change the spare tire. Just not going to happen. 
right? So that right there, that was all worth one year of, of AAA right there. We had a wreck recently uh, last year where the truck got totaled. AAA, again, more than pay for itself for a year. Um, if we don't use them next year and we end up actually paying, I'm still good. I'd be happy not to need them. So AAA I recommend as well. Now, the one thing I want to add to this about vehicle recovery. I talked about using a come-along, right, cable puller. All right. Somebody wrote in and said, you know, you really should tell people, because what I talked about is you have the vehicle stuck, you put it in neutral, you get a, a tie-off point, and you're trying to move your vehicle out of the uh, this where it's stuck, so you get it to move a couple inches, you go get back in it, put it in gear, and try to move it. You know, somebody might be on a hill with the car facing down the hill stuck and pull the car out of being stuck and have the car run them over in neutral. Yeah, that could happen, right? So there's different ways to make allowances for that if you're alone. The best one is to, to tie off the vehicle to something substantial like another tree behind it with you know just maybe a few uh, maybe a foot of slack so if the vehicle starts to roll it'll just roll up against that and stop because it's not going to take off and, and roll down the road at a thousand miles an hour that's that's one way to do it another way to do it is to put in something that will act as a wheel chalk so basically some big logs or bricks or something they're just a couple feet in front of the back tires so as you pull the vehicle out if it begins to roll it rolls up against them and stops and gives you time to go throw the vehicle in gear or what have you but yeah don't pull the vehicle downhill on yourself but all your equipment folks use it before you need it use it before you need it use it before you need it one more time use it at least a little bit before you need it because the day you need it you don't have time to learn how to use it let's take another one Hey, Jack. It's Wayne, uh, Northeastern Kentucky. Hey, man, uh, just had some questions on, uh, uh, ponds and, uh, pond maintenance. Um, got a pond, uh, about a, oh, about a, about an acre in size and, uh, fairly new. I've never had a body of water under my control. Um, cattails, maintenance, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, I'd really like to just, um, let it be a pond. Um, but I realized, like everything, you just can't let it be. You know, there's some interaction, some management involved. But um, no pun intended, just a little bit out of my own water on this one. Maybe uh, see if you had some information. Thanks a lot for all you do. Document. Okay, so the, the reality is you probably don't have to do much at all. And... If you do, you probably want to get someone involved that, that does, you know, pond cleanouts, pond dredging, things like that, if the pond is too silted in. And we'll talk about how that happens in a minute to kind of revitalize the pond. And if you find a local contractor that's good at that, and please check, check better, better business, check for reviews on them, check for negative, because pond contractors, uh, they come in two types. Really good and complete shit. Okay. I mean, that's just, what I've found with everybody uses heavy equipment in their work. You either get a really good person or a really bad person with a bad rep. And you can say that about a lot of different professions in the contracting world. So exactly how you do all that is not really that important. Deciding when is important and understanding how ponds actually success. You know, we talk about forest secession, right? Not seceding from the union, but secession, actually moving forward to a climax maturity and eventually into a decline. Um, all ponds are actually forests waiting to happen. Okay? 
And there's, there's different stages of pond secession. Basically, you have what you call bare bottom stage. And when I, when I tell you these, you're going to realize that your pond is in the, the third of, 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 you know, five stages. Uh, and the last one is no pond. And the next one for your pond is like a marsh. Don't freak out. There's a long time between the, the third stage and the fourth. In fact, it's a lot longer than these other ones. So you have a bare-bottom pond. You put a fresh pond in, a pond is formed somehow, back flooding, pigs do it, uh, excavator does it, whatever, you have a pond. It's just water and bare-bottom. The next stage in pond secession is what's called submerged vegetation. Water systems build topsoil faster than just about anything else on the planet. Every speck of dust, you just think about the accumulation of dust over a year. Every speck of dust that hits the water of a pond tends to never come out again. So all dirt, all things, anything that falls into the pond, bird poop, whatever it is, eventually settles to the bottom of the pond and begins to build topsoil. All right? In that soil, and in all of those things being brought in, eventually seeds that... And, and, and starts and pieces of things that will create submerged vegetation get in with that, that layer of buildup on the bottom of the pond. And you go into your next phase. This is called submerged vegetation. This is, now, this can get out of sync because a lot of times people plant stuff. All right? This is what happens in general in nature when nature takes its own course. So now this is where you have weeds and plants growing up from the bottom of the pond. That moves us to the third stage. We call this emerging vegetation. I think I would make my, my high school freshwater biology teacher proud that I remember all this shit, right? So emerging vegetation is when we start having things like you have, like cattails and other plants, uh, lily pads, etc., coming up out of the water that we can see above the water level and, and encroaching from the banks. Now, as I said, this can be misunderstood where actually a pond is because if we put a pond in and go out and grab some cattails and stick them in there, we're at emergent vegetation stage, but we still have a very thin, if any layer at all, of buildup. So we're really in the submerged vegetation, a bare-bottom stage, but we've cheated. Or if we put a pond in where there's already a little marsh area, and that pond back floods to the marsh, and then we have emergent vegetation there that's now part of the pond. So you see how you don't get all in a wad about this? But what happens over time with your emergent vegetation stage is that vegetation itself grows through cycles of birth and death and falls to the bottom, and it sticks up, and it catches more of the wind-blown uh, debris and dust, which falls in and builds more and more and more layers of what we would call silt in a pond. Okay? That, we th when we think of silt, we think of like a, like a, like a pond that's an impoundment on a, on a creek, and the creek's bringing silt in. But the air can act as the creek, Right and, and bring dust in. And as that builds up, the pond gets shallower and shallower and shallower. And eventually we move into what we would call a temporary pond or a prairie or a marsh. And then eventually even that fills up and there might be some wet spots and all, but we, we success then from prairie and marsh into forest. That is the life cycle of a pond. If we put a pond in, of just about any size, unless we're talking about like permanent lakes, right? And even those give time enough time, right? Um, but if we put in a pond and we walk away and never touch it, sooner or later nature will render it back into forest. Which kind of makes us understand our role in the universe is a lot smaller than some of our egos would have us believe. So, 
what we generally want to do with a pond, and this is why I talked about session about all this, so we get the, 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 the pattern recognition here, just like a forest. What we want to do with a forest is a forest success is the same way, and when it hits climax, the only place to go from climax is decline. And a forest goes into decline and eventually rebuilds itself as a new forest. So since we're managing ecosystems, when we have a forest and it's headed toward climax, we want to kind of hold it in that, that, that stage. And we kind of want to, to make it take as long as possible to get all the way to a climatic stage. And we actually want to be replanting and remanaging it so as it's in decline, it's actually replacing itself so that it, we're holding it there. So with ponds, what we want to do is the, the, the point in that pond's life where it can do the most as far as biological diversity is the emergent vegetation stage, which is where your pond is. We want to hold it there. And if we do any maintenance on it, we want to be careful how far back we knock it from there. So a lot of times what a pond maintenance company will want to do is come and drain the whole pond, completely dredge everything out of it, and then allow it to refill. You can do that, but you've gone back to basically a bare-bottom stage. Since there's all types of nutrient flows and pieces and seeds and stuff in there, generally you're going to go really quick into a submerged and back to an emerging vegetation stage. But what it makes a lot more sense a lot of times is to dredge parts of the pond and to leave parts of the ecosystem undisturbed. Because that's what we want. When you have a pond that has lily pads here and it's got you know, cattails over there and some reeds and it's got, you know, and it's got a lot of open water. And I don't just mean open water as you can see the surface. There's a lot of surface, but there's also a lot of open water. Like if you have lily pits, there's still a lot of open water. I'm talking about depth from the base to the surface. You've got a great healthy pond. And remember, your emergent vegetation can only emerge from so deep. That's why it usually starts right on the banks and just into the water. So if your pond's deep enough, then once you get past a certain depth, these plants that are emergent plants, like lily pits, they can't emerge anymore. You can see very clear in certain lakes and ponds where there are lily pads, they get right to a certain point and they just stop dead butt cold. Maybe one's kind of floating out there or something, but there's an edge. And remember, edges are good for diversity, biodiversity, and life. So that's how to think about it. When it needs maintenance, you probably need some help. Um, you know, if you're just pulling cattails out or something like that because you don't like where they are, they're going to grow right back. But that's fine if you're harvesting them for use or something like that. But with a one-acre pond, um, unless it's really old, any major overhaul, you might do it once in your life and you may never get to a point where it needs it in your lifetime, if it's, especially if it's deep enough. Um, again, depending on your climate type, any kind of erosion, things like that. But that's how to think about it. Hopefully that's helpful. Hey, Jack, this is Aaron up in uh, Pennsylvania. Question, your predictions for the Libertarian Party for this coming election and possibly the next one. And for local charities, what do you think would be the best bang for your money? I'm thinking maybe donating to a local library. Education for everybody, and uh, they can uh, voluntarily participate if they want to okay sneaky with two questions i'm going to start out with the simpler one the second one first because you did manage to get them in very effectively 
Uh, personally, if you want to donate to local libraries, go ahead. That's that's fine. I don't have, especially in a, a library that runs on donations. I think that makes a lot of sense. It is, you know, then a voluntary thing, and that's great. And it does provide knowledge and and, and resources for people. And it, it's one of the most benign things. Even the, even the government libraries, which do yes, rely on the use of force through taxation for funding, in the end, are one of the most benign things that could ever be done after that money was extorted with the money. So. Fine. Personally, I think you want your biggest bang for the buck as is, is is being charitable. You don't worry about whether or not you're going to get a tax deduction, and you find individuals that you can make a real difference in their life, and you do it with money, you do it with mentoring, you do it however. Right? I think, you know, one year, for instance, the company I worked for, we're thinking about what do we do for Christmas, and... You know, instead of just you know everybody buying a toy for toys for tots or something like that, the one girl that worked for the company knew of a family that was in really bad shape. They'd all moved into this little mobile home together because one side had lost their house due to foreclosure, and the other due to to weather events. And they were all living in this mobile home, and they'd lost everything. And so all we did was just bought. We just they, she went to the two mothers and said, "What do you need?" And then they made a list, and we just went out and bought that stuff. And then she just took all the stuff we bought from the company straight down to it. And I remember one of the things they wanted, the kid wanted a blanket because he didn't have a blanket. And I remember walking through the the store, you know, having picked up a blanket and, and having a little bit of teary-eyedness thinking, this kid doesn't have a freaking blanket. Now, I'm sure that all these charities that are out there, and there's some really good ones, not all shitty, like the Red Cross is shitty, and I would never give them a dime, uh, Haiti, I'll just leave it there. Uh, and, and, you know, and there's good ones, like Salvation Army is actually a great charity. They put a lot of that money to work the right way. Um <clears throat> In the end, though, there's no direct connection unless it's mission-oriented. You know, If we know we're giving the money for victims of this thing and there's an organization who can go help, then there's a connection through the event, if even not the individual. But if you want your money to do the most, take the time to find someone that needs help and give it to them. And don't worry about whether you get a tax deduction or not. And if you, you really want to get to the point where you can get tax deductions, then what you do is you charter your own Nonprofit that you actually don't own because then it's your nonprofit, it gets all sticky. Uh, and you, you set up direction and appoint a board of directors, and then you give your money to that with a strong ability to say, There's a person that beats our charter that I helped you write. Okay? If you really want it for tax, because that's what rich people do, by the way, just saying. Um, but to me, find the individual yourself and provide the help in the way that you know will make the biggest impact on their lives. And that way, if they don't take advantage of it, you know not to help there again. And if they do take advantage of it, you know to help there again. Okay, now what's going to happen with the Libertarian Party? Um, let's talk about the three guys that are most likely to be the Libertarian nominee, which has not been decided yet. We have John McAfee, which is, yes, the guy as you know from McAfee uh, Antivirus Software. Um, we have a gentleman named Austin Peterson. And we have Gary Johnson, who has been a multiple-time nominee as a Libertarian. I'll start with Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson is the former uh, governor of New Mexico. And uh, I'll tell you that I don't think Gary Johnson is actually a libertarian. I think he's a very libertarian Democrat. When he breaks from libertarianism, he breaks to the side of the Democrat. He's also extremely fiscally conservative, and that's what many people would say he would be more accurately a, a very libertarian Republican, because people think libertarian and Republican are the same thing. They're so not the same thing, okay? Um, but when, when, when Gary Johnson was asked in the libertarian debate, 
if he thought it was okay for a baker to say, no, I don't want to bake you a cake for your gay wedding, he said no, because then we could have large bouts of people discriminated against. Okay, I'm sorry, and you're not a libertarian. You're not a libertarian. If you think the government has a place in telling one private company um, what what private citizens they have to and don't have to serve in their business, you are not a libertarian. There's a lot of things we can differ about in libertarian uh, the libertarian world and have people that are you know different there and it still falls under the umbrella of libertarian but if you think the state can mandate who I do or do not do business with you have gone outside the tent and you've gone outside the tent to the social justice warrior democratic party side okay and there's a few other I, it's not important so I won't dig down but there's a few other places where Johnson's done that Austin Peterson is the least electable person out of the libertarian trio of, of who is available. He's the least likely to gain the nomination. He is the most switched-on economic uh, person that we have running for president as a libertarian. And he's a libertarian. You know, His answer to that question was, absolutely, you should, you should be able to refuse service to anybody you want. By the way, I'd never do business with the company that made that choice. But if they want to make that choice, they should be able to make that choice, and I should be able to stand outside and boycott them. But if you go to his website and listen to his explanation of what he wants to do with banking, with truly free banking, and basically not just audit the Fed, but let's put a, his exact words are let's put a knife to the throat of the Federal Reserve and drag it across it. Uh, I wish he could deliver those words as well as I just did. Just saying, just from a personality standpoint, it ain't there. Um, but he's a libertarian. John McAfee. I think John McAfee is an anarchist. Okay, and this is where things get gray, right? I think John McAfee is, a, is an anarchist who is also, like I am, a pragmatic realist. And, and says, I can, I can make progress here. And since we're not going to have a stateless society in our lifetime, then progress is good. Okay. Uh, if you said to me, Jack, of all the people running for president... Um, that ran, period. Like, all, we had like a billion candidates, right? And there's like, there's like 20 freaking presidential candidates for a Libertarian Party. How many are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. By 21 candidates, official candidates that, you know, vying for the Libertarian nomination. And there was like, what, 18 Republicans and like five Democrats. Out of all of them. If you were going to vote for somebody, who would you vote for? I would vote for John McAfee. Because I think he's closest to what I want. Now, what do I think is going to happen um, with the Libertarian Party in this election? I think it's very possible that they may get more votes for whoever their candidate is than they've ever done in history, and it still won't matter. Whoever wins will say it didn't matter, and whoever loses out of the main parties will say it's their fault. And I also think it may not be the case that it will be Libertarians that are the only one with a big showing this year. Bernie Sanders, love him or hate him, has hit something in especially the millennial generation. He really has. Because, well, these guys have been indoctrinated into socialism and don't know what it is and don't understand where it leads to and are dim enough, not all of you that are in the millennial, but the ones supporting him are dim enough to think that if we put a word like democratic in front of socialist, it's not the same thing as socialism, which it absolutely is. Okay, And it always leads to the same place, and it's always bad, and it's always horrible, and it's more of the 
fascist socialism that we already have with different packaging on it. But he's hit, again, you don't have to like it, he's hit it. And if you were going to tell, you said to me, Jack, of the political parties out there um, that, that will be on the ballot or likely to be on the ballot for the election, if Bernie Sanders were to run, which party should he run under? Should he run as a Democrat? I'd say no, he should probably run as a Green Party candidate. And I think there's a whole block of people that have been really excited about Sanders. He packs tens of thousands of people into rallies that will not vote for Hillary Clinton. They won't do it. They absolutely will not do it. And I think many of them will not vote Libertarian. Because while they listen to the Libertarian message, and a lot of it sounds good, a lot of it sounds like that's an evil Republican thing, so you must be a Republican, right? Like fiscal conservatism, right? That, oh, conservative, that's a, that's a Republican. That's, a, that's evil. That's a repugnant Republican. No, that's not stealing other people's money. But most of the people in the Sanders crowd are very much for stopping foreign aggression and foreign warfare. Well, Clinton's not going to give you that. Sanders isn't really going to give you that. He'll, he'll, he'll pander to it, but he's not going to give it to you. Right? Um, uh, Trump definitely isn't. Cruz wouldn't have. The only people that are actually talking about pulling back from foreign wars and meaning are libertarians and the Green Party. And there's some other independent stuff out there too. But I mean, of the, I mean, that's what you're likely to see this year on the ballot in most states: a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, and a Green Party member. They're likely to all be on the ballot. So then they're faced. Just think about it. They're angry. They're pissed. A lot of them are now. They feel vested in this. So they're probably going to. Some of them are going to stay home, but some of them are going to show up and vote. They won't vote for Hillary, and they shouldn't. Who are they going to vote for? John McAfee. I don't think I'm mocking him. I just said, if you made me pick somebody, that's who I would pick. But here's where I actually think we might be heading in the right direction. I was a longtime libertarian. I even ran for office as a libertarian. And for a long time, I was the guy that said, I'll never be an anarchist because I don't understand how it would work, which wasn't a really good explanation, but I thought it was at the time. Or it's never worked, which was wrong, and I didn't know that at the time. And the biggest thing that kept me from crossing over from libertarian to anarchist is that there were so many anarchists out there that were complete assholes. Purist bullshit assholes that, that mocked libertarianism. And that, that made me take longer until I was able to frame it as a moral question. Is it ever acceptable to use force and coercion to take the property of another person? Yes or no? No, it's not. It's not okay. If that person came about their property in a legitimate manner, using force and coercion to take it from them is wrong. It's always wrong. It's never okay. It's never right. That's what taxes are. And is it ever appropriate to use force and coercion to make someone take an action or to prevent someone taking from an, an action that doesn't harm anyone else and everybody involved in that decision is okay with it and a consenting adult? No, it's not okay to do that. Okay, then you're an anarchist. If you believe those things, you're an anarchist. Your only moral quandary now is, well, I don't understand how it will work. That's fine. I don't understand how it will all work yet either, but this is how I feel about it. If that's the real morality, then isn't the only moral decision to try. And here's where I think libertarianism comes on that spectrum. Libertarianism is basically methadone, for the person who's addicted to the state. That might piss you off. Give me a second. Maybe it won't. Okay? 
I was addicted to the state. I didn't consider myself addicted to the state, and when an asshole purist anarchist, when I was a minarchist libertarian, called me a statist, it pissed me off, and it, it actually entrenched me in my position. You think you're helping, but you're not, purists, okay? All right? <laughs> but it was libertarianism that gave me an option to start moving away from the state, and it would have been equally appealing to me if I had been a Democrat rather than a Republican first. Because it had something for me, no matter who I was. And what it appealed to was the concept of non-aggression. And as a Republican, I was a Republican in the early 90s. Because I hated the concept of socialism, which is, it's, the Democratic Party is socialism. That's what it is. And he didn't understand that the Republican Party was a different kind of socialism, and the Democrats wanted my guns and the Republicans didn't. That, that's what entrenched me there. But I always had problems with things like, well, we can't let gays get married. Well, since that doesn't affect me, I don't understand why. Well, then they'll want rights. I don't understand the problem with that. right? I, and I still don't. So I always had these certain things like, well, we need to stop drug use. Well, do we? Has it worked out very well? Is this a good idea? Should we be putting people in jail because they possess leaves from a plant? When over half the country, would, if they were honest, would say, I've done it at some point in my life, well, this should be an illegal thing, that, that, that the majority of people in the country have at least tried once. And they're not all dead or zombies or killing people. Does this make sense? There were certain things that libertarianism let me hold on to, some of the things that I felt from the conservative viewpoint, and yet actually have an answer to these moral quandaries. So libertarianism to me is a stepping stone. And what the problem with so many anarchists is we take our step upon this stone, we stand there for as long as we personally need to be there before we find the clarity of saying, hey, I should go further. And once we make that step, we realize it's not scary and we can be practical and pragmatic and still be for a stateless society as our ultimate goal. That that's all okay. And that we're still not, just because we changed our mind doesn't mean something bad's going to happen. And now we have to figure out how to start pulling things in the right direction. And then we turn around and take a crap all over that beautiful stepping stone that was like music to us when we found it. I won't do that. I won't do that. Now, if you want to have a, a philosophical discussion over a beer, we can debate, you know, what part of the tumor do you want me to leave in if I'm your doctor? Okay. <laughs> We can have that. We can have that. It's never been tried. Well, it's been, it was done here. It was done here. It was done here. It was done here. Here's another. This is how it worked. That's not, you know, we can have all that discussion. But anything that moves the public at large in the right direction, I'm for. I think there's an opportunity here for libertarianism to call to a whole bunch of people. I don't think it'll change the overall direction of the country. But this is something that I differ with with many prominent uh, anarchists who I have communications with, like Larkin Rose, for instance. It doesn't make sense to have a libertarian party, is his opinion. I think it makes perfect sense. And his response was, well, what have they gotten done? And my response is, well, they got me done. They got you done, Larkin. We came to anarchism through the libertarian path. I don't care what they've done legislatively. I care how many people they've started, like a little pebble, rolling down the hill. 
I don't care how many times that pebble rolled up against something and lost momentum, as long as it started moving again, I judge the Libertarian Party based on how many anarchists it creates. And I think we have the potential for the Libertarian movement in this election and several to come to actually create more anarchists than are already in existence, that our numbers will more than double. Because I do believe once you start down that path, it is inevitable that you end up at its logical conclusion, which is force is wrong, therefore the state is immoral, therefore even though there's no answer to how we dissolve the state today, the only moral decision is to work in every conceivable way to render the state obsolete. And that's what I hope this surgence, this resurgence of libertarianism results in. And it, it disheartens me to see many people in the anarchist community crap on it Because I know most of them, less than four to six years ago, you were right there, and you're now crapping technically in your own backyard. You're just standing at the front door while you're doing it, so now you think it's okay. And I don't think it's okay. And I'll tell you this. These uh, 21 people that are running for a presidential uh, nomination in the Libertarian Party, I'd take any one of them over Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Ted Cruz, or any other of the ilk that ran with the possible exception of Rand Paul, who is a libertarian-leaning Republican. Um, simply, dude, I don't know all of these people running. And I know that Rand Paul would be competent in the job. And I don't know that I would agree with everything he has to do, but he would be competent in the job. But if John McAfee versus uh, Rand Paul, John McAfee. Gary Johnson versus Rand Paul, <laughs> Gary Johnson. Austin Peterson versus Rand Paul, yeah, Austin Peterson. I think Austin's probably smart enough he'd... Get Rand's old old man into uh, running the economy and the banking system. Um, in the end, it's not going to matter. And this is why I'm still thinking about running for president, launching my candidacy on June 1st with the slogan of "Don't vote for me." And my first little mini 30 second or less speech will be because I will always be honest with you. And honesty will make you uncomfortable in America. You don't want honesty, and you don't want to be uncomfortable. So don't vote for me. And that's why I think this libertarian belief, this libertarian bubble, right, is limited. Because I don't, see, I think when you find libertarianism, you feel like if everybody just knew, if everybody just understood, they would do this too. That's why it's like beautiful music. It's methadone to the, to the meth addict that knows they want to give up the dope. They know it's destroying their lives, but they can't see a path out of it. And then, oh, there's this thing I can take that won't destroy my life, that I can be weaned off and can get me whole again. Let's do that. Let's try that. And then they think, well, all of my other all of my other addict friends, if I tell them there's a clinic here that does this, they'll come with me and they'll get all and they won't. Because they're happy where they are. And I think the majority of Americans want authority because they are uncomfortable when people are allowed to do things they would prefer that they not do. And all of us have things we would prefer people not do. What it takes is maturity and a true understanding of freedom to realize those people, so long as they're not hurting anyone, need to be permitted to do those things, or my liberty is but a sham. The person that believes themselves to be free, while they call for the oppression of others, is but a fool who in his tyranny has falsely proclaimed himself to be free. With that, let's take another one. I know that was long, but guys, if you want my opinion on something like that, there it is. Hey, Jack, this is Scott in Texas. Uh, what is a good 
setup for marketing a new website? Like, what should I have? What pages? Facebook pages, Google Plus, etc. Thanks for all you do. Okay, we just did a whole show on building a business, and I'm going to really recommend that this caller go back and listen to that show. Though I have a feeling they may have, and it may have spawned some of this. But there's something I said in there that I'll say briefly. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the show from this week on building and choosing a business. But having a website that you drive traffic to, no matter how that traffic gets to your website, before you've optimized the site itself to create a pathway and a funnel for the customer to take, is wasted energy, money, resources, whatever it took to get it to happen. You can get a website, and we could advertise, if we got free advertising, on every major network for four hours of advertising a day. And that site wasn't set up to actually channel the visitor's activity properly. You could go broke with free advertising on all the major networks. Or just not succeed. We could put a million people on your website, and if your website is not set up to maximize the arrival of a visitor, then you won't make any sales. Okay, So the biggest mistake that people make with a website is they only set their site up to create a single positive outcome. Somebody comes, they buy, or they don't. No, your website needs to have multiple positive outcomes. The most important thing you can do with a new visitor is to, to engage them in a positive action that gives you permission to talk to them again. Whether this is by getting them to become uh, an email subscriber, uh, to follow you on Facebook, all of those things, Twitter, etc. So your site needs to be optimized to, to cause that action. Follow us on Twitter. You know, Go here and subscribe by one of these methods and get a free report, whatever. Right, and, and I can't get into that because I could spend 20 minutes, like I just did on libertarianism and anarchism, just to explain that, and I wouldn't even do it justice. But you just have to understand that your, your site has got to be set up so that when a person gets there that's never been there before, that's not you, that doesn't know anything about it, they know what to do. When you get to Walmart, someone hands you a cart says, Hi, welcome to Walmart. Right? Hi, welcome to Costco. I love you. Some of you know where that's from, right? Okay, but they welcome you. And, and that immediately switches on the concept of this person works here, here's a cart to put shit in, I'm supposed to go buy shit now. Now, I know that's why you go to Walmart, but it reinforces it. And it also says, if I'm not familiar, this person can help me. Where is the sporting goods section? Now, they may not know how to find a specific part, but they probably at least know the general layout of the sporting goods are back there, automotives over there, clothing's there, food's on the far wall, what have you. That gives you direction. A site needs to give your visitor direction. It needs to tell people what you are and what you're all about. All right? And when you're bringing traffic to your site, it often makes sense to bring them to a page like subscribe or an information capture page or something like that. And I'm going to really recommend you go to jackspeargo.com and listen to all hundred and some odd episodes of 5 Minutes with Jack if you want to run a business online. I can't rehash it all here. But here's some basic things I've learned about social media. Number one is, with Facebook, if I were starting over today with Facebook, I would, yes, create a survival podcast page, but I would also create a survival podcast group, and I would put all my effort into growing the group. And I'll tell you why I'll do the page in a second, but let's start out with why I do the group. We started the Regenerative Agriculture Group, 
when I post something in that group, while it doesn't tell me how many people saw it, by the response that I get on the other end, I know that of the 14,000 people in that group that we grew over the last six months, that a ton of them are seeing it. And yet I'll post something to Facebook, and it'll say like 1,800 people saw this a day later. And I have 100 plus thousand followers on Facebook. And what Facebook has done with the pages is in their algorithm, they've made it more difficult for your, your stories to go viral and things like that. Where in groups, there's a lot more interaction by its very nature. Now, why would I do the page and the group? You do the page because when you post a story with the page, you get a lot of options you don't get with the group. You can add a picture, including the one, one that's not necessarily in the story you're linking to. I got it, Okay. And that means you can create engagement at a higher level. And then you take that from your page and you share it in your group, but you put your efforts and growth into your group. I should probably do that with TSP. The reason I haven't is because there's 110,000 people sitting over here. And what Facebook wants to do now is sell me access to my own people. Give us 100 bucks and a quarter of the people you've engaged will be able to see your stuff and their friends rather than let me just show it to the people who said they want to see it. I think that the... The easiest layup there is right now in driving website traffic is Pinterest. I don't like it. That's why I don't use it as much as I should. But it drove more traffic last year to actual website ends than Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter combined. Got it? Is it in your, does it make sense now? It is extremely good at actually generating traffic. Now again, that traffic does no good if the person gets there and there's not a process for that person to follow through with. And there's a lot of grandmas and little kids and stuff on there that aren't going to buy your stuff, but it's too powerful to ignore. So it definitely set that up. Google, Google Plus, of course you set that up. Um, and then you tie your Google Plus and your YouTube account together. So every time you post something to YouTube, it goes into Google Plus. How much you work and how you work each of these is up to you what you like most. I like the interface with Facebook. I wish I could reach more people with it, but I like the way it works. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Instagram and, 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 and Pinterest and stuff like that. So even though they're powerful, I tend to use them less. Google Plus, I feel like it's just Google trying to be Facebook with a little different layout, and I've just never really gotten into it, but it's a great medium. So you have to figure out that you only have so much time to do this stuff, and a lot of it could be interlinked. So there's, there's ways that you can set up things where you post it to one place and it goes to your Facebook, it goes to your Twitter, it, it, you know, and use automation for that. Here's some automation I use. One, I use a service called AWeber. And I use that for my email list. And when I post to the blog, like I have a new episode, it's ready to go. The feed from the blog, blogs have what's called an RSS feed, really simple syndication. Don't worry about what it is, you can look it up and learn. But I put the feed into AWeber, and when I, when I make a post to the blog, within an hour... The email just goes, and you know, 25,000 of you are on the email list. So not everybody uses it, right? It's, a, it's roughly, what, 12% of the audience. But that 12% is served by that service, and I don't have to do jack shit. I have a little thing, a, twi a tweet button on the site. So I click tweet, and boom, it goes to my Twitter account. I copy the thing that goes into the Twitter box, and I click tweet. Twitter's done, taken care of. Then I go to Facebook to my page, and I hit Control-V, and then the stuff that went to Twitter just drops into Facebook. I add a little bit more to it, upload a picture if I want to, boom, I put it on Facebook. Then I share it with the Survival Podcast Facebook forum. I share it on my personal site and other groups that I'm in if that particular episode fits with it. 
And it's all done in less than five minutes. So automate things and learn these technologies. And then find the ones that you enjoy engaging on most because it's not about, well, do you have Instagram or do you, you can have Instagram, you can have Foursquare, you can have all these, these social things. Do you engage on them? And the, the honest answer is wherever your audience wants to engage you, you should get, engage them. Um, I kind of put it back to like, think about when the, when the telephone first came out. Imagine you were, you know, in, in business at that time and you sold stuff. And the way you sold stuff up till then was probably a person would write in and request a catalog, and you would send it to them. And then they would order from the catalog. If they had a question, they would write a letter. This is how people used to do business. They would write a letter. Uh, on page 27 of your catalog this year, You have I'm wondering, does this do this? And then somebody would correspond with you, write a letter back to you, and then you'd get your question answered, and, and then you would order the thing if it worked for you. Or they'd say, no, it doesn't, but if you turn, refer to page 29, this is more, and they would explain it to you that. Well, that was customer service. When the mail system was a hell of a lot slower than it is today. Now, but people got comfortable with that. So I'm sure there were business people when the phone came out, we don't want a phone. But if their, if their competition had a phone, once the customer started using the phone, you need to start using the phone. So if somebody calls you, you wouldn't say, hey, Hazel, I'm not taking the call. Tell that person to write me a letter. So wherever you're getting pulled from, that's where you got to do it. So hopefully that helps you. Again, it's a, more of a way to think about it in a shorter answer segment like this. But um, you can't ignore social media today. Set it all up and play with it. And realize no one's really paying attention at first, so you can't screw it up. And figure out where it works for you. And then put your efforts there. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Jaron here from Northern Utah. Uh, my question is that at what age is it safe to introduce new quail to an existing flock? Uh, I currently have 50 birds that are about three and a half weeks old in a 100-square-foot aviary. I put them out at 10 days, uh, and they did fine, by the way, with a heat lamp in their shelter. Uh, I got down to about 35 degrees here at that time, and I had zero losses. Uh, but if I get another 50 birds to brood, should I wait longer to introduce them to the rest of the flock? Or do I even need to worry about my bigger birds picking on the younger birds? Uh, thanks, Jack, for all you do. Keep up the good work. Um, the reality is at about four to five weeks of age, a quail may not be fully grown to its full body size, but it's pretty much big enough that it's an adult and it can handle itself and it can be introduced with other birds in your aviary. Remember I said in the intro that I was going to actually explain how this is just like tropical fish? And there's some rules you need to think about when you when you do this. So if you take too many fish for a tank, and it's a tank with no caves and no plants and no no like that, but you run like an uber efficient filtration system where they're not gonna kill each other with ammonia. They're just overcrowded and you have especially multiple species of fish, you're going to get conflicts and fish tearing each other's fins and attacking each other and biting each other and things like that. Okay, this is one of the drawbacks to keeping quail in a rack system. You have to keep your numbers down. You can't put new quail into a rack system with other quail that have been there in established order, uh, or they start attacking each other. You get too many in a cage, they start pecking each other in the in the head and the eyes and, and things like that. Um, you put a new bird, you have like, let's say you have four to a cage that could have six. A lot of times you put a new bird in that cage, they don't know, they all start picking on the outsider. Because there's no place for everybody to get away from each other. So basically, in those systems, you, you really need to raise your birds together. 
Now, sometimes you can you can pull this off by getting a couple new cages in a rack system and breaking all your existing birds up so that nobody knows anybody, so that everybody's a stranger, and keeping your population low per cage, and you can you can you can make that work. Because since everybody's a stranger, everybody has to figure out how to get along, and you still have to watch it really carefully. When you go to an aviary, everything gets easier and better. And the bigger to the relative number of quail, the better. Because if I don't like you, and I peck you, because I want to be here, there's all these other places you can go, and I have not noticed in my quail, since they went to the aviary, when there's a conflict that if one backs off, the other one pursues. Now, males will pursue to breed. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about fighting conflicts, attacking. And if you have places for them to hide, clumps of vegetation, etc., and everybody can find little spaces to be alone, they all get along a lot better. So I would say about four to five weeks and make sure there's enough hiding places, etc., your population's not too high, what have you. And everybody will pretty much get along. Because we had at one point, now we're down to just brown quails, And we have a one white quail. She escaped. I'll tell you about that in a second. But we had them in different sections. And they would fly, because my, my sections of my aviary are not completely floor to ceiling. They go to about waist height. And sometimes, especially before I catch them and clip their wings, they get over. And we had birds from one side get over to the other side. There was no problem. There was no problem. I guarantee if I took that bird, especially if you had a white bird and a brown bird, and you got one oddball, and I threw that bird in a rack system with like six birds that had been in that you know two by two cage for a, a few weeks together, they'll ter- they'll tear the crap out of it. But since everybody can go along to get along, it's all right. And think about it this way: imagine you and me and ten other people in a ten foot by twelve foot room, certain amount of couch space, certain amount of climate control, and we all have to be in that room together. Okay. We can get along for a day, two, maybe three, but eventually we start to wear each other the hell out. Now, put us in a house where we have a common space, like a kitchen and living room, and then get break us up into pairs and give each pair the 10 by 12 room for our sleeping and getting away space, And then say, and by the way, if anybody's just not getting along with their roommate, you're cleared, you're free to ask if there's a, a certain person that wants to, to break off with you. And then we'll put like one extra room in the house that's like anybody can use it for up to two hours at a time. If somebody's in there, you got to just figure something out and you can go outside. Well, then everybody can get along. Everybody can get along. That's how tropical fish are. That's how birds are. That's how human beings are. They need that space. So as long as you give them that recourse, you shouldn't have that much trouble. Because I, I, I had a different opinion about this before. I thought, hey, these guys are way more assholes to each other than chickens are, to like a new chicken. And 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 now I don't believe that's the case at all because chickens, when they're free-ranging sometimes, they'll just pick out a chicken and go, we, we hate that other chicken, right? Where the quail, like as long as everybody can kind of just do their own thing – They don't have time to like zero in on one. To, it, it, there might be an exception or two, but I have not seen it. And now having dealt with you know 100 birds at a time, have not seen that be a problem at all. Let's take another one. Uh, hey, Jack, this is Hunter. Um, I'm just calling with a quick question about Internet privacy and security. Uh, you know, just some of the things that we can do to be more secure online. I'd uh, just like to hear your thoughts and questions and anything that you have on that. Thanks so much. 
Okay, when you get into all the technical aspects of this um, and all the different things that you can do, uh, I did a show not that long ago. It was this year, February of this year, episode 1728 with Justin Carroll on personal privacy in a mass surveillance age. We talked this about this from a standpoint of Big Brother watching us to the standpoint of a hacker that wants to steal our information so that they can run up charges on our credit cards. And it's, it's probably the best thing you do is just go back and listen to that episode. February 10th, 2016, episode 1728, Justin Carroll on personal privacy in a mass surveillance age. And uh, he was a veteran, 15 years of service to the United States government. Um, he was part of uh, Marine Special Operations Command and worked on a contractual basis with other government agencies and deployed some of the world's most dangerous and inhospitable places. He's got a real good insight as to how the government's handling this, both from a standpoint of protecting information and exploiting information. So it's a great resource. That's what I recommend. Now, I will say, though, that the issue is you can tell people all you want get a VPN. And it's a great idea. And running your Internet traffic through a VPN is great. Running across Tor, it's not 100%, but it, it's, it's better. But when you're, when you're running like VPN or Tor or anything, the problem is that your information is only somewhat protected inside there, but when you get to the other side of where you're going and you're now interfacing with something like Amazon.com making a purchase or making a post on Facebook, you're outside of the tunnel. So let's imagine we could create a new special technology to prevent car wrecks. This is, how they, this is basically how VPN works. So you get in your car and you pull out of your driveway onto the road and all of a sudden a magic tunnel appears. And that magic tunnel doesn't let any other cars get near you. It's like a force field. And you can go flying down that tunnel as fast as you want, and you can't hit anything. Uh, the, the VPN is not quite that safe. But let's pretend that it was. Now, at some point, you're going to get to a point where you have to exit to go to the store. And pop out of that tunnel, and now you're in the store. Well, you're only protected when you're in the tunnel. So this is the problem with VPN, the Tor network, uh, proxy servers, uh, uh, antivirus software, blah, 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 blah. False sense of security. So people stop thinking because, oh, my antivirus will take care of it. I don't have to worry about viruses anymore. Oh, uh, no one can get my credit card information because I'm using a VPN. Okay, here, here's the issue. The hackers of the world, yes, there's still worms and stuff out there that they try, and, and, and phishing emails, which you have to be pretty stupid to fall for most phishing emails. They want to get your account access to PayPal, or they want your credit card number, and what have you. But the hackers of the world that are any good have snapped to the concept that it makes more sense to try to hack the, the, the merchant side to get information than you. We recently had someone get a credit card number of ours, and thankfully, because it was a credit card and we had consumer protections with it, um, it and I'll talk about credit cards because my opinion on those have changed over the years for a variety of reasons, um, and this being one of them, but this is how this worked. So <laughs> I needed some USB drives to sell in California, and I bought them from Fry's. It's the only time that credit card was ever used until we took the trip to California. Initially, we thought because stuff happened in California, it was somehow stolen in California. It wasn't. The only thing we used it in California for, rental car. Okay. So we're pretty sure that 
someone that works for Fry's or someone that hacked Fry's uh, website got our credit card and credit cards of other people, and the charges were all under a thousand bucks, two or three charges, and quit. Before the credit card company even notified us, and we said, yes, that's fraudulent, they were pretty much done. They got something delivered with a thing called DoorDash, which is basically like takeout food, like but you call a place that does takeout only, and they go get it for you and bring it to your house. They took an Uber, and there was one other thing that they charged. Oh, a, a phone at an AT&T store. So, you think about this. We have, clearly Uber should be able to tell them where this person was picked up and where they were dropped off at. Huh? DoorDash brought food to their house, and AT&T, there's a store number, so we know where they went and bought a product from AT&T store. So, like an AT&T cellular store. Police are doing absolutely nothing. Why? Too small. So what, what's going on now with credit card theft is these guys are hacking databases or they're creating skimming opportunities. They're grabbing a shitload of credit cards, and instead of just selling them on the black market like they used to, they're using each one two or three times for random crap to have a party, basically. And then they just stop and go to another card. And because it's always one individual complaint, and since they're getting it from a, a hub, it's not like... They're getting it all from, you know, people in Dallas, Texas. They're getting it from people all over the country. And they know no one's coming after them. Unless somehow it gets pieced together that they're, because it, once the police know, law enforcement for the jurisdiction knows, there's a lot involved down to one point, then they'll go after it because it's worth their time. We had three different law enforcement people tell us that basic thing. One was a very good friend from the sheriff's department who took the initial report here Uh, and we called him because we know him as a family friend and said, I'm telling you, that you'll hear from one of our, and we heard from one of their people, their, their investigators at the local sheriff's department who transferred it over to a person in California who said, yeah, we have a report. If anything comes up, we'll let you know. So that's the type of thing we're fighting now. We're not just fighting people trying to do identity theft. We're also fighting people that are trying to get the data from the places you're doing business with. So one of the things Justin said in that interview that I'm talking about was he'll buy cards, like prepaid credit cards, and then when he's going to buy on Amazon, he'll transfer just enough money in them to complete the Amazon purchase. And then you have to ask yourself, do you want to do all that? Do you want to do that? Or do you want to get a credit card with consumer protection? So why have I changed my take on credit cards? When I started this show, I was like, you don't need a credit card. Nobody keeps a credit card. Credit cards are useless. I don't care if you get cash back. I don't care if you get airline miles. You don't need a credit card. You don't need a credit card. You don't need a credit card. And you don't need it to build credit. All it will do is ruin your life, potentially. So you don't need it. Um, rental car policies have changed. I used to have people all the time, Jack, you got to have a credit card to rent a car. And I'm like, I rent cars all the time on my debit card. I rent cars all, and I did, 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 all the way up till about 2014. And then we ended up spending $500 more than we should have on a rental car because when we got to our destination, only one car company there would take our debit card, and they charged us an extortion fee, in other words, in, in order to do so. And we had to show them a copy of our return itinerary for them to even do it. So I said, damn it, get a credit card. Another reason, though, is while some debit cards have consumer protections, you can get credit cards with really, really airtight consumer protections. Where if somebody does get your credit card number, they do monitoring. They let you, we, we, Ours was through Wells Fargo, and they did fantastic. They were on it like that when we had this problem. And immediately, they shut it off. They had a new card to us, like, 
like a bullet. So, in fact, we were even able to say, okay, well, we're in California. We have a rental car on this card. And they were able to say, basically, we'll let that one charge go through on this card, and nothing else can go through. So things like that are helpful. And we were actually able to find out that we, while we couldn't rent the car with our credit card, it didn't matter anyway, that the, 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 car, you know, the car's already rented type of thing. Um, oh, that's right, it wasn't even a problem. So we didn't rent a car. We had another issue where we were worried about that. And what we found out was we could use the credit card to rent the car, And then we could actually, when we turn the car in, pay the bill with a debit card. So that's that's how we approach rental car. But we have the credit card just because of, of, of renting. But at this point, I also look at them as a valid thing for additional consumer protections. Um, though I, I believe that you have to handle it like it's a debit card. That bill is due as soon as you, I mean, honestly, um, with online banking, you can set things up to basically you can just once a day, if you put anything on a credit card, pay your bill. And if somebody gets that credit card, you keep you monitor it, you know. Um, but this is why I'm a fan of things like PayPal. A lot of you guys hate PayPal. First of all, let me tell you something about PayPal. PayPal's not anti-gun. Jesus. Oh. Uh, not allowing you to sell guns with PayPal is protecting themselves because the government would love to shut PayPal down. Um, PayPal's no more anti-gun than their anti-Indian artifacts, which you also can't buy with your PayPal account. But with PayPal... Every time a penny moves in or out of my account, I get a notification. If somebody hacks my PayPal account, there'll be one usage before I know and have it, have it locked down. You know? I mean, really. So I, I like that. I like Bitcoin. And I like Coinbase with Bitcoin because it's out of security. Um, so another option you have is to use a service like Coinbase and to keep the majority of your Bitcoin in a vault. But then you're subject to volatility of the market, etc. So it's not like you want to put all your money there. But there's a lot of things you can do. Um, the only real way to be completely safe, secure, and private online is to create a completely fictitious identity uh, for all your online activity and never buy or sell anything online. The reality is there's risk, and you'll never get rid of all risk, but just don't be stupid. There's an old saying in the computer industry, there's no patch for stupid. There's no patch for stupid. There was a story of a company that was working on gaining a client, uh, a government client, And they said, we can show you how we can breach your network. And they said, there ain't no way you could breach our network. Um, they came in for a meeting. They sat down. They immediately had, immediately had access to key critical components of their network. And they're like, how did you do that? And they're like, okay, we'll let us show you. Well, what they had done, they had loaded up some USB drives with malware. Um, and they had just randomly tossed them like over their fence into the parking lot of this place where people worked at. And several people had found one, picked it up, wondered what was, I mean, I wonder whose this is, you know, and took it in, and they put, like, pictures of puppies and shit on it, like, that looked harmless, with this little piece of malware that instantly uploaded as a client onto the, the person's computer, which, of course, was credentialed to the network, and was able to plant, basically, places where they had access points into this uber-secure network. Why? Because there's no patch for stupid. You don't find a USB drive laying on the ground and plug it into a networked computer in a secure environment. You don't do that. Especially when you work for a government facility, but people did that. So it's more, it, the biggest thing is how you think about things. And as far as government surveillance, you've been surveilled. I mean, I'm not even worried about it anymore. Now I'm a public figure, I understand that, but I mean, 
if the government wants to know that I think they suck, I mean, they can listen to episode one, episode two, episode three. I mean, we are in 1795 right now. Um, I'm not saying you have nothing to, to fear if you have nothing to hide, that nonsense. What I'm saying is, if you're going to live in an online society, there's going to be surveillance. And there's only so much we can do about that. But, I mean, there's other things you can do. You don't need to give away information that's not necessary. You know, telling people you're going on vacation when you don't have anybody taking care of your house? Maybe not a best idea in the world. I tell you what, I, I never leave the house unprotected. You know, there's always somebody here. I don't like doing it, but because of the fact that, like, there's not going to be a show for a week, I have to tell you. But I don't put on Facebook, I'm leaving my house. That kind of thing, you know? Um And anything that sounds too good to be true online probably is. That's my final word on that. With that, I'd like to remind you, you can help support the work we do by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on members and becoming a member of the support brigade. It is the, the best way that you can support the show and the work we do. For 18.3 cents an episode, you can help make sure that content like we provide continues to come to you like it has for the last eight years almost. We are less than a month away from our eighth year birthday and thank you to all of you who have helped make that happen. Uh, and, and the biggest way, again, is Member Support Brigade. And here's the deal. Yes, it's 50 bucks a year, but it's not a donation. We are not PBS. We are not the public broadcasting service. We're not going to send you a tote bag that's worth a dollar for your $200 donation so that you can watch Masterpiece Theater. That's not what we do. We provide you real original content and programming. And here's what you get in return. Discounts on stuff you're probably buying anyway so that your membership, in the end, doesn't cost you anything. If you're buying things for self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty, everything from guns to gardens and everything in between, then the discounts we provide you will put your money back in your pocket. Western Botanicals discount alone, for those of you that use herbals, will put all the money back in your pocket for a year. Um, there's just a ton of things that you get discounts on. A lifetime membership to Safe Castle's discount code. All kinds of great deals. Check it out if you haven't before. Look at the list of discounters and realize you could be doing business with people supporting the show. You could be getting discounts that more than pay for your membership, and you could support the show uh, as well. Survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members for more. Another way, so simple, T-SPAS. T-S-P-A-Z dot C-O-M. T-SPAS.com. What's T-SPAS.com? I'm glad you asked. TSPAS is just the domain that you type into your, your, your computer or your smartphone, and you go to Amazon, then shop on Amazon. That's it. That's all. You ain't got to do nothing else. It could not be easier to support the work we do than to, when you shop on Amazon anyway, to buy stuff you're going to buy anyway, use our domain instead of theirs. They get free advertising on every episode of the show. You get the same price, prime delivery, whatever it is you're doing, you get the same exact thing. You type one less letter, and you help the work that we're doing here. tspaz.com, best way in the world. Other than a membership, you can help support this show. Uh, next up, do want to remind you there is a special knife on sale from Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives. Uh, it is the TSP-branded um, Genesis 2 with MT Knives logo on one end and the Val logo on the other side of the handle. Uh, that knife is $99. That's a steal in of itself, especially as a limited edition. But if you are an MSB member, you get it for $10 off for $89. That knife is phenomenal at $89. I bought one myself at full price. That's how much I think that's a value. And I carry one version or the other of the Genesis almost everywhere I go every day of my life around my neck. That is a true story. And as far as doing business, um, why don't we do business with as many members of this community as we can? You can do that by going to tspbiz.com. tspbiz.com will take you to the business directory at the survivalpodcast.com. And uh, there you will see other companies that are part of this community that have set up businesses. 
and the, the stuff that they offer. And uh, you can be listed in that directory for as little as five bucks a year if you have a company of your own. Uh, today's supporter of the directory is Midwest Therapy Associates. They provide occupational therapy consultation via phone or Skype for parents concerned about child development. Allison has been a TSP listener for over a year. She's a registered occupational therapist specializing in sensory processing and development issues. Search for Midwest Therapy in the TSP Business Directory to learn more. And uh, I will have a link in the show notes as well for them as well. Also, remember, we do have our voting up. We only have a few days left to vote for the shows you want to hear in June. Some of them are on a razor-thin edge as to which one's going to win. There'll be a, a link to vote for your favorite shows for next month uh, for Tuesday Just Jack shows in the show notes today as well. Today's closing song, I Won't Back Down, by Tom Petty in The Heartbreakers. I love this song. I love this song for so many reasons. First, it just sounds good. Tom Petty made some great music. He's got a great sound. He's unique. He's one of those artists that as soon as you hear the first word come out of his mouth, you know who it is. It's not like, is that Coldplay or Nickelback or some other person that just showed up you know, in the last 10 years or something like that? It's like, oh, that's Tom Petty. He could be singing something like this song, or he could be singing a Christmas song. And the first line, that's just nobody else in the world that could be. That's him. So I like the sound, and I like the music, and it's just, like, most of his music kind of has this kind of, you know, kind of like, I don't know, this classic rock that, that outlived classic rock to it. Like, Tom Petty was doing this music after the golden era of classic rock kind of ended, which to me was the 70s and very, very early 80s. He was still doing this type of music. But the other, of course, is the message, you know? And it's it's tailored to an individual situation in the in the song, but I mean, this is how I feel about everything that's important to me in my life. I will stand my ground, and I won't back down. Back me up to the gates of hell, and I'll stand my ground. I mean, can you imagine how much different this country would be if that sentiment was actually in our people? Can you imagine how much different our society would be? If my generation and the generation before me had worked hard as we were raising children to instill more of that in this millennial generation that keeps getting hell from everybody that doesn't deserve the hell because we made them, we did it. And I know many of you are like, I did instill that. I'm not asking you if you did it. I'm asking you, what kind of society will we have today? What kind of young people will we have today if the majority of Gen Xers, baby boomers, and tweeners had raised the millennial generation to be people who would see this song rather than some crap, you know, by some freaking, I don't know even what you call some of this music anymore, as their anthems. If it wasn't, everybody sucks but me, right? If it was, I will achieve, I will accomplish, I will make these things happen. This song says that. So I'm playing it for you on a Thursday, Let it carry you through to your Friday. And in all the things you're trying to accomplish, whether it's a, a building a homestead, producing your own food, starting a business like we talked about this week, no matter what it is, teaching your children, you know, no matter what it is, no matter what it is, stand your ground, don't back down. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
me a 